Heavenly Father, we thank you for the marvellous blessing it is to have your word before us, that in your word the living God speaks to sinful creatures like us. Lord, we come before you this morning and thank you for your word, but we also come before you and ask for your mercy, that you would also give us much of your Holy Spirit's guidance and understanding this morning. We pray that as we look at your word together, that you may be with me as I speak, and may it not be me speaking, but may you use me this morning, and may you get all the glory. If anything is said this morning that is helpful to those who are listening, we pray that you may get the glory for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, I must admit, on Tuesday morning when I first got back into the office, my mind was a bit foggy. I've just spent two weeks on annual leave, and of course I cut back on my duties, and that of course meant cut back on my reading and cut back on my digging into God's Word, as I do when I'm preparing for sermons. And so coming back Tuesday morning, there was a bunch of stuff that I needed to do that regarded administration and so I had that sort of in my brain that I had to do all these things and then when I actually started to uh, look at the Bible I found that my brain just wasn't in gear and so I had to really work at trying to think clearly and that's often the case we find that it's not just when we come back from holidays but we do struggle with foggy brains but is it a problem to have a foggy brain? Is it a problem to have clouded head that you can't think properly, that your brain isn't in gear, that you haven't got your thinking cap on as you should? Is this a problem, particularly for us as Christians? Are we ones who are meant to go around in a stupor all the time and not really think properly? Are we meant to behave like brainwashed people where they just don't think about things, they just take other people's word for it? Are we supposed to think clearly as Christians? Well, that's what I want to look at this morning. We've been working through 1 Peter chapter 4 for uh, several weeks, and then I had a two-week break while I was on annual leave, and we've come to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And last time I preached, I preached on the first part of that verse on page 1203 of the Black Church Bibles, if you want to look it up, page 1203, 1203. The first part of that verse, the end of all things is near... And then this week I want to look at the rest of that verse where it says, Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Here in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4, we see quite clearly that it's unacceptable for Christians to be foggy-brained, to not be thinking clearly. In fact, we're told to be clear-minded and self-controlled in verse 7 there. And that's my first main point this morning. If you want to follow along my main points, they're on the back of the church bulletin there. My first main point this morning is be clear-minded and self-controlled. And these are imperatives from Peter. They are commands. Peter's not saying if you want to. He's saying no, be clear-minded and self-controlled. But what does it mean to be clear-minded and self-controlled? Well, the word there that's translated clear-minded in the NIV in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4 can be translated as well-balanced, uh, reasonable, sensible, serious, to keep one's head. And the word self-controlled, uh, that might not think too much about your brain. You might think uh, self-control is to do with other things. But the word here in verse 7, translated as self-controlled by the NIV, is about being sober, being free from mental and spiritual drunkenness is the idea, so um, having a clear head, freedom from excess, 
passions, rashness, confusion would be another translation. And so we see that these two words are very closely linked. It may be that the NIV's translation by putting self-control there is not the the best of ones, but other translations like the Holman say we should be serious and disciplined. So getting more of an idea of your mind there by the word discipline. The ESV has the word self-control, but it has self-controlled as a translation for what the NIV has as clear-minded. So it says be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. The New American Standard, the NAS, says have sound judgment and a sober spirit. So you can see these words are very similar. And basically what Peter is saying here with these two words is just be sane, think Clearly, have a sound mind, evaluate your life properly and be able to work out clearly what is right and wrong. He doesn't want you to be unsound or an insane sort of person who isn't able to think clearly about their life. An insane person doesn't know what is right and wrong. An insane person doesn't know what is real and unreal. And you're meant to be the opposite of that. You're meant to be someone who can determine what is right and wrong, what you should be doing in a situation and what you shouldn't be doing, and what is reality and important, and what is unreal and unimportant that you can dismiss. Now, you may think, oh, this isn't particularly relevant for you because you are always clear-minded and self-controlled. But, no, we should recognise, if you're honest, that we often don't think as we should. Things affect our judgement and so that we aren't clear-minded. Our brains become foggy for a number of different things. Some things that cloud our brain are particularly when it comes to sin. And if we go back a few verses earlier, back to verse 3, we see a list of sins there that I preached about uh, a couple of weeks ago, a number of weeks ago, that really are sins that do the opposite of making you clear-minded. They're ones that cloud your judgment. What were the sins listed in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 4? For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Those sins basically there could be grouped under two sort of main categories of sin. Firstly, sexual sins. That's there with debauchery, lust, and orgies. And if we are honest, we admit that sexual sins do cloud people's judgment. You know what you should be doing, you know what is right, but the sexual sin just clouds your brain so you think of only that and you end up not doing the right thing at all. And you just see the way that sexual sin, particularly um, when it comes to politicians, it, it, just, it must completely cloud their judgment because they end up doing things that are really, really dumb. Everybody knows it's really dumb what they've done, but they've risked their, their marriages, their families, their electorate, their, their, their position in office, their job, and their reputation for the rest of their life. Wikipedia won't forget. You know, it, it just it goes on and on, their decision that was made, because they had a foggy brain because of what? Because of sexual sin. It just clouded their mind up. And what's the other sin that we could, the sinful category that could sum up a couple of those sins in verse 3? Well, sin to do with alcohol. Drunkenness is listed there. And carousing, which when I preached on it, I talked about how that is really talking about wine uh, drinking parties, basically a pub crawl. Now, do people on a pub crawl think clearly? Are they clear-minded? No, alcohol clouds their brain. And so people will try and give a defence in court for things that they've done, and they'll say, well, I was drunk at the time. And it seems to be this acceptable excuse, because, you know, obviously it wasn't me doing the sin, 
wasn't me who committed an act of violence, it was the alcohol doing it. The alcohol clouded my brain, so I couldn't think it's not a wise thing to punch that police officer, which everybody knows it's a dumb thing to do, except for the person who's got alcohol on his brain. He's got his mind clouded by alcohol. So if we're honest, we admit that we're often clouded in our judgment, and sin can be one of the culprits that clouds our judgment. But also pleasures of this life cloud our judgment. They cloud up our heads. There's so much to see, so much to buy, so many different experiences to enjoy. And so we embrace all those things and we, we think life is a holiday all the time. That was my problem coming back Tuesday morning. I've been enjoying myself all for the last two weeks and so it's hard to get my brain back into gear because I've just been experiencing pleasure non-stop with my family for the last two weeks. And so it's a bit of a reality check to come back into work. And if we're honest, we see that with the good things that God gives us. But we can embrace them to such an extent that that's all we think about. And they've actually clouded our brains about what is really important and other things that we should be thinking about. And something else that clouds our brains is suffering. When we're experiencing pain, when we're experiencing persecution from people, we often don't think clearly then. And that's one of the big purposes of 1 Peter. This letter was written to early Christians who are undergoing serious suffering. And Peter is reaching out to them and trying to encourage them to think clearly about your situation. Don't recant on the faith. Don't go back. Think clearly about what it means to be a Christian. Don't let the persecution that you're experiencing, even persecution that was mentioned back in verse 4 of 1 Peter 4, They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, all that sin, and these non-Christians heap abuse on you. Suffering's mentioned there just a few verses earlier. And when people are abusing you, do you think clearly? When people are saying horrible things to you, what happens with your brain? You go red in the face and you start to not be able to think. Peter is quite right to say that we need to be clear-minded and self-controlled because so often... So many things cloud our judgment. They fog up our brain. And so we need to think clearly and not think poorly, as we so often do. So how do we do that? Is it easy to just put your thinking cap on, as the teachers say at school with the the children? They say, okay, now, children, put your thinking caps on. And so all the kids dutifully mimic putting a hat on. And then, of course, they think clearly for the rest of the day. And then they take it off when they get home. Is that the way it works? That you just need to flick a little switch and, you know, Peter says, be clear-minded and self-controlled and you go, oh, okay, I hadn't thought of doing that, but now that you've said it, I'll just flick the switch and I'll be clear-minded and self-controlled for the rest of my life. No, unfortunately, it's not that easy. We, We are not able to think clearly at the drop of a hat, so we need some motivation. What helps us to think clearly? And that brings me to my second main point this morning. Be clear-minded and self-controlled since the end is near. Be clear-minded and self-controlled since the end is near. Peter is saying that there is a good motivator to clear-mindedness and self-control, and that motivator is knowledge that the end of all things is near. He says that in verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Certain things make us think very clearly, particularly violence done to your body. When somebody slaps you in the face, you start to think. You might have been a bit groggy and a bit sleepy before that, but what do you do with someone that's 
passed out on the floor or, you know, that you're trying to get motivated to do something, slap across the face or a jolt of cold water in the face. That's a very good motivator to make you start thinking clearly. But it's not just violence to the body that can make you think clearly. Certain things said to you, certain thoughts can suddenly snap you into clear thinking. You get a phone call in the middle of the night and at first you're a bit groggy and you're ready to complain against whoever's calling you, but then they tell you something very serious has happened to maybe a loved one, a, a parent or a relative. What happens? Your brain switches into gear. You suddenly start thinking very clearly. All thought of sleep is removed and you start asking good questions of the person. And what can you do? And you start thinking about what it is you can do, whether you need to suddenly move and get out of the house and go or what you'll need to organise so that you can go the next day. You start to think very clearly because of information that has been told to you. And what is the jolt then, the information that God gives you to make you think clearly, to be clear-minded and self-controlled? What's there in verse 7? The end of all things is near. And we know that this is connected to being clear-minded and self-controlled because of the word therefore. See it there in verse 7. It says, the end of all things is near, which I preached on last time. And then he says, therefore, he's got that connecting word, saying what's come previously is connected to what's coming now. And we could also translate it consequently. Because the end of all things is near, consequently, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Does it make sense that knowing that the end of all things is near would make you clear-minded and self-controlled? Well, yes. When we consider what will happen on Judgment Day, which I spoke about last time I preached, it's a very serious thing. And the fact that it's coming soon, that it could be tonight or tomorrow, really should motivate us to think clearly. When we consider what will happen on Judgment Day, that all those sins that we've enjoyed will result in punishment for eternity. That'll wake you up, if you consider that. All those pleasures that you invested time and money into, all those possessions that you bought, if they're going to be burned up and it could happen tomorrow, will that make you think more clearly today about how you spend your time and what you spend your money on? And all those things that you do that are not to God's glory will be burned up. And all those people that you love dearly who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens to them on Judgment Day? Eternal punishment in hell. When you seriously understand that, that that could happen to those people around you that you care about and it could happen at any time, the end of all things is near, we looked at last time, that really wakens you up. It really gets you thinking. You don't go off and say, oh, right, yes, the end of all things is near, it could happen tomorrow, and what's on TV tonight? You really start to understand how serious this is, and your brain gets into gear. So once you have thought about the fact that the end of all things is near and you've started to become clear-minded and self-controlled, which hopefully you have, what should you use that brain for? What should you use your brain for when you're thinking clearly? Well, what does Peter say? He's going to say a few things that we should do, but I just want to concentrate on the first one that he gives for us in verse 7. He says, The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled, so that you can pray. The first thing he wants you to do is what? Pray. And so that's my third main point this morning. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. 
when you start to consider that the end of all things is near, that judgment day could be tonight, and it wakens you up and you start to think clearly, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pray, Peter says. And Paul agrees. In Philippians 4, 5 and 6, he says, The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious. But pray, Paul says. And that's what Peter says here. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And this is wonderful advice for us if we're Christians because we do find prayer difficult, if you're honest. You'll admit that prayer is not something that comes easily. Firstly, because we often don't think of praying. We've got so many other things on our plate that we just don't find the time to pray and we don't even have the notion that we should pray at any given time. We don't desire private prayer and we don't desire corporate prayer. We don't want to meet with other people to pray and we don't want to pray ourselves. We don't have that natural inclination to it. But there's nothing like a sudden revelation that the end is coming to make you want to pray. And we see this not just with the end of all things is coming motivates us to pray, but just the fact that your life may end very, very soon motivates people to pray. What do you see in the movies? Someone's there, they've got a gun to their head. What do they often do if they're given a few moments to live before the gun goes off? The person will often turn to prayer. They will start praying. They'll start praying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. They turn to prayer because they know that the end of their life, not all things, but the end of their life is near. And so they turn naturally to prayer. And we don't just see that in the movies. I mean, you shouldn't believe everything in the movies, but I've never seen anyone with a gun to their head to see what um, they would do. But we also see it in the Bible. We read that passage from Hezekiah. Isaiah comes along to Hezekiah and says, yeah, you better put your house in order, you're going to die. What does Hezekiah do? He turns his face to the wall and prays. Knowing that the end is coming motivates him to pray. It pushes him into prayer. And the same thing should happen if we know that the end of all things, the end of the world is coming. It should motivate us to prayer as well. We've just seen in recent weeks this Mayan prophecy that the end of the world is coming on the 21st of December. And uh, and so lots of people are up uh, talking about this and some people are quite distressed by it. I've actually uh, heard of someone living in Dremoyne, uh, a friend of a friend, uh, was talking about how... Um, in a bit of a flap about the end of the world coming. So it is affecting people. And I actually got on the internet and looked at what the advice is from any sort of Mayan people. And a Mayan elder says, because the end of all things is is near, he says, go to the sacred places of the earth to pray for peace and have respect for the earth, which gives us our food, clothing and shelter. We need to reactivate the energy of those sacred places. That is our work. What are they telling you to do? pray. People recognise that if the end of the world is coming, what should they be doing? They should be praying. And that's Mayans. What about us as Christians? They have, the Mayans have so little evidence that the world is coming to an end on the 21st of December. But we as Christians have good, reliable evidence from people who are in a position of authority to speak about the end of the world and they say it is the end of the world is near, we should be listening and we should be praying. 
If vague notions of the end of the world motivate people to pray, how much more should it be when someone who is risen from the dead and in, we historic, have historically reliable evidence to know that he really did come back to life, then if that person says the end of the world is near, then we should be listening and we should be praying. It should motivate us to prayer. But how else does knowing that the end of all things is near help us to pray? Firstly, it gets us praying. How else does it help us? Well, it helps us because when we pray, often we don't know what to pray for. Prayer is difficult because we might make some time and we say, yes, I know I should pray, and I sit down and I pray. But then you go, well, what do I pray for while I'm here? I'm supposed to pray, but what what are my priorities? What things should be on my prayer list? Well, if you know that the end of all things is near, then you will start to pray for things that are of eternal value and not for things that are of temporal value. If you think the world's going to end tomorrow, will you be praying that you'll get a million dollars later today? What's the point of that? The world's going to end and all that cash that you inherit will be obliterated. You'll start to pray for things that will matter after the world's end. What are those sorts of things? Well, you want to pray for your own life. You want to make sure that you will be okay in the next life. And so you'll tend to God in prayers of repentance and prayers of faith. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning and you're hearing from me that the end of all, all things is near and I tell you it is and that's troubling you and you think that you should pray to God about that, the first thing you need to do is say sorry to God for your sins. Repent of your sins. Say I'm really sorry, God, for what I've done. And then pray that you trust that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for you. Trust that he has paid for those sins so that when Jesus returns, you will be safe and you will live for eternity in heaven instead of living for eternity in hell. If you're not a Christian, I want you to do that now. Don't wait for me to finish the sermon. Offer a prayer of repentance and faith now because the end of all things is near and it could be in two minutes' time. You haven't got much time, possibly. Do it now. And if you struggle to pray as a Christian, you've repented and and trusted in Jesus and you still struggle to know what it is to pray for, well, when you clarify in your mind that the end of all things is near, you'll want to pray for the ongoing spiritual development of your life. You won't want to see yourself fall away and then the end of all things come and you're... You're eternally damned. You want to pray about your own spiritual development. Lord, help me to grow as a Christian. May I be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. As soon as you start to consider that the end of all things is near, it starts to inform your prayers. You start to know what to pray for, for yourself, but also for those around you. You start to know what to pray for those around you. There's lots of things that you can pray for others. You can pray that someone else gets a million dollars. But if you know that the end of all things is near and Jesus could be back tomorrow, what are you going to pray for for others? You're going to pray for their salvation if they're an unbeliever. You're going to pray that they pray prayers of repentance and faith in the near future. That's what you're going to start praying for. You're going to pray for the salvation of your friends and family who do not know the Lord. And you're going to have great motivation to do that because you know that it could be all over for them very shortly. And they could be eternally punished. And you also start to pray for your fellow Christians around you, that they will grow in spiritual development, that they will stay mature in Christ, that they will not fall away, 
that they will continue on the narrow path that leads to eternal life rather than go on the path, the wide path, that leads to eternal destruction. So this morning we've seen that we need to be clear-minded and self-controlled and that happens when we consider seriously that the end of all things is near and then that leads us to pray. So do you struggle to pray? Do you find prayer easy or do you find it difficult? Do you find it difficult to make time to pray, to actually get the motivation to pray? Do you find it difficult to know what to pray for when you actually sit down or kneel down? You don't know what to pray for. Is the reason you struggle because you don't really understand that the end of all things is near? That it's never really impacted your brain like it should have? That Jesus is coming back and there's a judgment day. And he will send some people to heaven and he will send some people to hell. Has that impacted upon your brain? Is the reason you don't pray because it hasn't impacted upon your brain? You don't really understand that tomorrow all your friends and family could be destroyed. If you really understood that, would you spend more time in prayer this afternoon? If I was able to tell you, which I can't, only, only God knows the day or the hour, if I was able to tell you that tomorrow Jesus is coming back, how would that change the way you live this afternoon? Would you spend more time in prayer? Would you show up at the the church prayer meeting at 5.30 this afternoon. Corporate prayer is a very powerful instrument that God has given us. When God's people meet together to pray, wonderful things happen. You see that in the New Testament. As the believers meet together and implore on God, building shake. Corporate prayer is a very powerful thing. If you understood truly that the end of all things is near, would you show up at prayer meeting this afternoon? If you knew that It was coming tomorrow. Would you show up at prayer meeting to come before God and beg him that your friends and family would become Christians? Maybe you don't feel the reality of the end of all things is near. What can you do? How can you understand more that the end of all things is near? How can you get it into your brain so it impacts you? Well, I'd meditate upon those parts of the Bible that speak clearly about the end of all things. Even memorize them. Memorize Second Peter chapter 3. It's not that long. We seem to have this attitude about memorization sometimes that we just memorize single verses. You can memorize whole slabs of scripture if you put your mind to it, if you're clear-minded and self-controlled. And I'd encourage you, try and memorize Second Peter chapter 3, which we looked at extensively when I preached on this verse last time. Meditate on parts of Revelation. Revelation is difficult. It's difficult to be clear-minded and self-controlled when you're reading Revelation. You get confused. But there are parts of Revelation that are very clear about what happens at the end, about the judgment and about the eternal paradise that we go to. Meditate upon Revelation. If you're finding it difficult to pray, what should you do? Read Revelation. Consider that the end of all things is near. And I'm sure if you do that, you'll start to find yourself motivated more and more to pray and more and more able to think of things to pray when you're at your praying. Let us speak to our God now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the revelation that you have given us in your scriptures, that you have told us that the end is nigh, that Jesus is returning any time, 
and we should be prepared for that. Lord, we thank you that you have told us how to be prepared, that you have told us to be prepared by coming to you in prayer. It's so overwhelming considering all the things that need to be done, and so it makes sense that we should pray to you because you are the God of all power. You are the God who can bring about the conversions of many, many people, whereas we cannot. And so it makes sense that we would come to you in prayer first and foremost. And so, Lord, we do come before you this morning now. We pray that we may truly understand what it means that the end of all things is near. And may this clear our minds and make us self-controlled and serious so that we can pray. Lord, we pray that the people of Des Moines Baptist may be a people of prayer because they know that the end of all things is near. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.